You are listening to the Enormo Cast. Hey folks, the word Enormo has long been used by Enormo Cast listeners to get great coffee from Defiant Bean and now BonfireCoffee.com. But now the magic word is going to make you not only more alert, but stronger and therefore more attractive. How does this work? Is simply screaming it at the crux enough? Perhaps. But more indirectly, but effectively, you can now use Enormo to get a discount on pure climbing holds. Go to pureholds.com, P-U-R-H-O-L-D-S.com, and enter Enormo at checkout for 10% off your purchase. And while you're there, check out the Enormo hold. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place. That's, out. Out. That's a big nice. place. You sold oh, it out. I'll see. You really should. The hell are you doing? I couldn't sleep. I'm checking the ropes. There was a frayed end on your rope, and I'm cutting it out. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime time for climbing. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment, with support from Maxim Ropes. And Defiant Bean is now Bonfire Coffee. How did that happen? Don't worry about it. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Normo at checkout for a discount. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma Cast. This is your host, Chris Kalous. It is Wednesday, September 17th, 2014, about... 8.30 Mountain Standard Time, and this is episode 65 of the Enormacast. Episode 65, a conversation with Russ Kloon. I had the pleasure of going on a trip with Russ a couple years ago. We went down to Columbia. For you longtime listeners, that's where I got the Cody Roth interview a while ago. But uh, Russ and I got to know each other down there, and um, right away I enjoyed listening to his stories that go all the way back to the late 70s and into the 80s. And the 80s happen to be sort of my favorite my favorite uh, climbing decade, you know. I know a lot of people like the Golden Age. A lot of people are into the Stone Masters from the 70s. But you know what? The 80s, that's where it all went down. That's where we decided how free climbing was really going to work. And kind of what we're doing now was developed in the 80s, for better or worse. Some people think it you know, went downhill. We started hangdogging, wearing lycra, doing all sorts of weird shit. But truth is, is the folks that created basically the sport that most of us are doing today were working it out in the 80s. So anyway, that was Russ Kloon. And uh, I've become quite good friends with Russ. And it was really a pleasure to sit down and have him convey some of those stories to you guys. So uh, that's coming up. And um, I don't have much else to say this time around. I'm headed out tomorrow morning to the uh, Craig and Classic. By the time most of you guys hear this, I'm sure it will be gone past. I'm sure it will be an amazing time. And uh, we'll be headed out there tomorrow, the long trip from Colorado to uh, West Virginia. And I will be setting my eastern climbing record. I will have not gone any further that longitudinal direction to rock climb in the United States, rather. I mean, I've crossed over to Europe. But uh, yeah, so it's going to be kind of cool. West Virginia, man. Never even been there. Have not been to that state at all. It's, uh, you know, I've got some stereotypes. I'm going to find out if they they exist over there in West Virginia. I'm sorry. I do. That's just the way it is, you know. I'm going there, though, with an open mind. Knowledge. To gain knowledge about uh, southeast climbing. Is that even considered the southeast? I don't know. See, I got to find these things out while I'm there. Anyway, going to do a live show, so if you do happen to hear this tomorrow uh, or Friday sometime and you live close by, come on down. I don't know uh, I don't know too much else about it. Craigandclassic.com, AAC event. All right, on to a conversation with the man, Russ Clune. Now, Russ has been climbing a really long time, but he also has been climbing well a really long time, and he's seen a lot of different sort of movements and fads and things go down in climbing, especially in free climbing. Um, and he talks a lot about that and climbing in Europe with such luminaries as Wolfgang Gulick, Kurt Albert, Jerry Muffet, and Bern Arnold, and a bunch of other people, which uh, 
for me, was just an amazing thing to hear about. In addition, Russ uh, made his living in climbing as well. He was one of the people who invested right off the bat in Black Diamond when it became Black Diamond. And hopefully we'll hear that story down the road here on the Enorma cast of the uh, demise of Chenard Equipment and uh, the beginnings of Black Diamond, which, um, you know, they're my sponsor, but also they're uh, a mainstay in climbing equipment. One of the sort of longest lasting companies, if you include the Chenard days in that. And uh, anyway, bankruptcy, lawsuits, all sorts of things went down to uh, turn the company into Black Diamond and Russ was right there at the beginning. So climbing has not only fed him spiritually, but it has literally put food on his table for the longest time, although he's kind of retired from that now and just living the good life. So enjoy this. East Coast Climbers, yes, this one is for you in particular. I'm trying to help you out. Russ Plume telling stories from the 80s. Folks, as you know, Black Diamond is one of the major sponsors of the Enormal Cast. And while the money they've handed me has disappeared into the dark hole of debauchery, they also hand money over to some important organizations, like the American Alpine Club, like the Access Fund, and like the Nature Conservancy, the people who control a major part of Indian Creek. So when you're spending your money on new gear, consider the fact that not only do they make great gear, but they're also trying to protect the places that you're going to use it. Black Diamond, proud sponsor of the Enormacast. Anyway, um, cool. Well, uh, we can just go ahead and get started. Sure. I'm sitting in uh, Salt Lake City at the. Uh, this is another another installment from the 2014 Outdoor Retailer Trade Show Enormacast Extravaganza, where I always stack up a few people and get some some interviews. Um, the last one of the weekend. <laughs> or what's coming up to be the weekend is with my good friend Russ Clune. Hey Russ, how's it going? Good, Chris. How are you doing today? Good. This is cool because uh we've talked about doing this for a while. You know, I, I went on a trip with Russ to Columbia last year or two years ago now, two years ago now. Yep. And uh I spent the whole trip like listening to stories, you know, drinking beers and listening to stories and every time I was like, Oh man, I wish this was on the show, this was on the show. Some of which um I don't think Russ will be willing to publicly repeat. Definitely but, not. But but a lot of stuff was really cool. And um, anyway, but since then, you've become sort of a fan of the show. You, you, the show's great. I mean, there's a bunch of my heroes have been on the show, and you've done a good job of cataloging them. I think it's been fun. Yeah, well, and that's kind of, I mean, you know, I, I want to get the new people up and coming, and I kind of want to get a historical record of all the people in between and, and, and uh, guys that have been at it for you know, forever, if I can. I mean, all the way up into, you know, some of the last guys that are from the golden age. I'd love to get some of those dudes on the show too, you know. Well, this is the place to find them. They're trying to find work still. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Although I haven't seen the bird at, the, at this show, have you? No, and thank God. Yeah. He's, he's had a couple of episodes here. He may not be welcome back to Salt Lake at all. Uh, I, I, Yeah, I can, can only imagine. But he was uh, featured, uh, uh, I saw the... Uh, the premiere of Valley Uprising, the new Sender film that I think will be out to the public this fall. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he featured prominently in there, of course. As he should. Yeah, as he should. Um, anyway, but this is awesome. So I'm really appreciative that, Russ, uh, that you sat down with us here. I don't know. Let's get started by um, just kind of talking about your career uh, that spanned how many years? How many years have you been climbing? Uh, since, uh, 77. So I started in the fall of 77. And, uh, and, you know, at that time in the seventies, climbing was something I always thought would be a really cool thing. I, I grew up in a family that had nothing to do with the outdoors. It was about playing golf and that, those kinds of country club, suburban New York. Where were you? Oh, okay. So you're up you're in, in Westchester County. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's nothing interesting, no interest in my family in the outdoors. I mean, at all. And why I ever thought it would be cool to be a, a climber, I can't really even tell you. I just used to enjoy being out in the woods and going camping in local woodlots. And uh, then I I started reading these mountaineering books, and I thought this is like the coolest thing in the world. It's you know when you're a young adolescent, it's like total adventure. But the problem was, I mean, the closest I could get to climbing in around Mamaroneck or Scarsdale, New York, was like a guy who had a merit badge for rappelling. Right, and that was it. I mean, there aren't any climbing walls. There aren't any. 
It really wasn't until I got to uh, college up in Vermont where there was an outing club where I had the first opportunity to go. The first weekend of school up there, I went on an outing club adventure and, you know, learned learned how to belay and how to climb in a pair of Fabiano mountain boots. And mm-hmm. next weekend, the gunks, and that was pretty much it. That's pretty cool, actually, because that's like a, a, a little bit of a parallel to my story in terms of, you know, being sort of an outdoorsy kid. Although my family was sort of, out, or at least in the past had been, you know, my folks were both farm kids and stuff but we lived in the burbs and i was when you just said like camping in woodlots like um i was the same way like if there was an acre of woods that i could sort of find or whatever i would go out and hang out and would even, your folks take you out like did you ever go camping with me ever take them out you know, like, to a state park or yeah we went camping a few times but uh but it was it wasn't like a total thing that we did all the time but mm-hmm. uh but yeah and then i went to college and, and started climbing but so that's kind of just sort of interesting that you know, a decade and a half apart, or no, just about 13 or 14 years apart, actually. So how old were you when you started? You were up in college. I was 18. Okay. Yeah, huh. I was 18. And I was, that was uh, I guess by today's standards, a very late start, because by 18, you've got to be climbing like 15B or so by now to exactly. even be considered a, a punter. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's definitely modern, you know. <laughs> there was no, there, yeah, I was just talking to uh, Randy about that, like, you know, it wasn't like kids at the crag back in the no. day. It was an adult activity for the most part, although he was pretty young when he started. But, all right, so, yeah, you end up in, in upstate, like, towards, uh, what did you say, Vermont? I was up in Burlington, okay. UVM, yeah, yeah. And uh, there were, luckily, I mean, up there, there were definitely people who climbed. It was, uh, you know, the, and the other big difference then, too, is the difference between you, if you're looking at the starting out now, I would, I would hasten to say most people who have started climbing now probably went to a birthday party in a at a at a gym and they were exposed to the idea of climbing from that sure but then of course if you weren't already an outdoors person of some sort you weren't gonna have any exposure to rock climbing it was about being outside it was much more of a uh i don't know how to it, much more of an outdoor almost environmental ethic kind of thing you did sure uh just a lot more challenging than hiking down a trail mm-hmm. but uh, and a lot more exciting because of course the gear was always well there's no sport climbing you had to put the gear in so that was a big difference, but it was uh, there were people in Vermont, and as soon as I was exposed to it, that was that, done going going every weekend. Uh huh. GPA fell like a rock. <laughs> <laughs> did you graduate? I did. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Very I, well done. I did that. I, I got out barely got out of there with a three zero, but yeah. <laughs> I got out. That's funny. I mean, that I lived on the outdoor adventure floor at, at CSU, which I, I think I believe I've mentioned before on the show, and and uh, we we all were. Not all of us were climbers, but we well, a lot of us were climbers. And at the semester, they got us all together and, you know, basically said, listen, you know, <laughs> you guys like are making us look bad because they, they had created this program where they put all these outdoor people on the same floor so we could all, you know, it thought it would be good for us spiritually. But really, it was like we had a cumulative like 1.2 <laughs> average or something. And you managed to stay in school. Yeah. You must have done something. Well, right. I, I actually was holding up my end because I had some pressure from above the parental units were were performer or out yeah exactly or pay for it yourself right so i had sort of a scholarship program of sorts through my father but uh but yes yeah, so it's pretty funny because you know they're like well it'll you know it'll help these kids adjust to college and basically <laughs> like half of them are gone at semester you know? they'll adjust all right just yeah, not exactly. the way they're going to adjust yeah totally so what did climbing look like then you know you just mentioned sort of the gear thing and we're not talking again we're not going all the way back to to just purely, you know, eight climbing days. I mean, this was sort of free climbing was, you know, coming on through the 70s. And, and you know, what did it look like to you guys? Well, you know, I, I was really fortunate. I, I truly believe in a lot of, I mean, I was so fortunate to grow up climbing or start climbing in the gunks during an era where the place was truly on the map. And I discovered that, you know, back in the late 70s and right into the early 80s, you had every climber of note, from didn't matter from California, from Europe, they were coming through here. The Gunks was on the map. It's where you stopped. You stopped in the Gunks. You went to Boulder. You went to Yosemite. So, and the standards were incredibly high. If you looked at uh, in 1973 to 74, between John Standard, Steve Wunsch, uh, John Bragg, and uh, and Henry Barber to a degree, uh, they took all these aid routes that had been done in these short cliffs and turned them into what would become. No one knew what the grades were. They graded them all five ten plus. But in fact, they were as hard as 12C and some of them without very good protection. So for the early 70s, you had this. None of us knew how hard these routes really were even sure. a few years later, right? Right. But you just know, oh, you know, they'll have these reputations like, oh, that one, right. Yeah, I don't know how they got up that one. So it was a great place to push. And uh-huh. you, and 
there was never any question. You had gear. All you had was gear. There was, I think, everybody you've had who started climbing in the 70s said the same thing. There wasn't sport climbing or you just went climbing. And mm -hmm. rock climbing meant putting your gear in and doing that stuff. Right. And uh, it wouldn't be until really another, you know, really six, seven, eight years later before uh, sport climbing would really start in mm -hmm. Europe and then eventually make its way to North America. So were you... Uh you know, you mentioned some of those names from the seventies. Were those guys still around? Like, were you? Did you end up, you know, rubbing rubbing elbows with these guys, or had they moved on by the time you were really climbing uh, a ton? No, they were still around. Every right. one of them. Henry was still around. Uh, well, he's still around. Still, around. he's still he's yeah. he's still around. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and John Stannard, you know, he's a physicist. He worked down in Washington D.C. Mm -hmm. and uh, he would drive up to the Gunks every weekend. And I remember the f I was probably uh, I was probably about 1978, so maybe 79. Had been coming for a couple of years to done some harder routes, at least by the standard of the day. And I remember the first time I went climbing with John Stannard, and I was going with another friend of mine, Rich. We're gonna and we, you know, John said, "Hey, would you like to go climbing the next day?" John was a very, very quiet guy. He didn't say a lot. And I just said, "Would you like to go climbing tomorrow?" And we were like. Uh, yeah, we'd love to go climbing with you. And I remember that night being so nervous. <clears throat> we were like, oh, my God, we're going climbing with God tomorrow. <laughs> oh, my God, what are we going to do? And uh, we ended up just having this. It was really kind of a funny day. We went out and uh, and went climbing with him. And, you know, we, we I, uh, during the entire day, I doubt we shared 10 words, just went out and did pictures of climbing. Really? And uh, then that was it. Uh-huh. And, and I had a few more adventures with John. I just realized he's just a very, very quiet man who did his thing. Uh, probably of the people of that era, the one I climbed the most with, and it was still quite active, was John Bragg. Because okay. John was still climbing and still putting up uh, roots in the late 70s of, of note. Right. And John Bragg, that's uh, he's like Patagonia? Is that First same? of Senatoria yeah. right. with Jim Danini. Right. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Of course. So this show has always been very Colorado-centric because that just happens to be where I live. <laughs> Convenient. Um, and then and earlier you just mentioned – oh, and by the way, Eastern listeners, <laughs> look – here he is, Russ Kloon. Russ Kloon is sitting here. And still living in the East. Probably yeah, unlike so there you go. Yeah, he didn't move away. Like I think John lives in Colorado, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So The smart people left a long yeah. time ago. But uh, And then you just mentioned, like, you know, looking at the history of particularly free climbing, um, because it was something that was could be done in a notable way off of a big wall. You know, you did have... Reading the histories, it was, you know, the Gunks and Boulder and, and Yosemite. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, even back then, you know, there was like, I, it feels like the history even now looking back, there was, it was very Western centric. Like, you know, was that, was that something you guys were aware of? Or, oh, for or sure. Like there was like a huge rivalry or like you had to sort of, you know, touch toes with these guys out west or that sort of thing? Well, you, of course you had to. And if you look at, uh, you know, Steve Wunsch did a huge amount of climbing out in, in uh, the Boulder area, mm -hmm. you know, a bunch of first and right, right. And But he was also, you know, back east all the time as well. And yes, you know, we always felt like the little, like, you know, little kid or the bastard child because we were back in the east. And, you know, the, the place was Yosemite. That's where everybody measured themselves. The, the interesting thing was virtually every gunks climber went to Yosemite. You know, people thought, well, gunks climbers can't climb cracks. Well, in fact... You know, we could. It wasn't right. that big a deal. And you go to Yosemite and realize, man, the roots back home are a hell of a lot harder than these. <laughs> so, you know, you kind of went back right. and like, yeah, whatever, dude. Well, historically, you know, kind of what you said about not knowing how hard these roots were and things got graded, you know, 10 plus or whatever. And, and what people have to realize is that that whole grading system wasn't necessarily – you know, it's not even standardized yet. I mean, it's definitely like a very subjective thing, but it was nowhere near any sort of standardized idea of grades. I mean, were you guys, well, not you, but in the early 70s, were they even using the the Yosemite decimal system out there? We used to use rocks and sticks and carve things into the ground saying, oh, uh, hard. No, <laughs> it's a little bit in the British system. Right, it didn't right. like hard, very severe, right. hard, very severe, tough is, you know. Yeah. No. But... <laughs> But, you know, the the idea still, it wasn't that far away from the idea that the Yosemite Decimal mm -hmm. System was a stop at 5.9, and that was as hard as right. it got. And obviously, right. got, you know, so eh, just nobody really knew. Right. And I mean, by today's standards, it's a scientific methodology compared to then. But right. but, you, but it gave you an idea. Right. But, but I'm, what I guess I want to get at, it seems like historically, since then, you know, we get these stories about how all of a sudden, you know, we realize that that route that was 10 plus is actually, well, guess what? It's like 12B and it was a 12B before 12B existed anywhere else. I mean, isn't the gunks known for having a couple like wink, wink, nod, nod, this was here 
way before oh, the, for sure. the official, you know, first whatever. Well, like we were talking about before, it's really hard. It's really hard to to garner a complete catalog of what was going on, and sure. because you know things were going on all over the world. You know, some of the things going on in Dresden, nobody knew about. Henry mm-hmm. went over mm-hmm. there in seventy four or five, and he said, "Oh, this stuff's kind of hard. Plus, it's scary as hell." Right. Um, but the things that what it did draw, if you took that period of it really was seventy three to seventy four with the culmination of Steve doing Supercrack, those roots turned out to be a lot harder than you know that they probably would have imagined. They just knew sure. they were hard, and you know, and it took a, it just like you know we don't really know truly what five fifteen A B and C is about. Well, you know, if you look at a bunch of things that were rated thirteen C and D when sport climbing first really started getting a foothold. Now those things are all like, you know, 14A, 14B. Right. You, know, you, you get – that's just part of the progression. I don't think people mean to undergrade or overgrade, but every – and as, as it should be, you're conservative, right? You want to just not chuck something out there that seems so ridiculous. And besides putting your ego at stake, you know, mm-hmm. you, just, you might be just misleading. So fair enough. It's just how it goes. Mm-hmm. But the Gunks did. It's fair to say it certainly had one of the hardest collections of free climb routes in the world. Right. For that, yeah, that totally. And, I, and again, like I think there was this legacy – you know, that started with mountain climbing per se, then, you know, like the way they talk about how bouldering was just training for the big climbs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, last night in the Valley Uprising movie, when they were talking about climbing like at Stony Point or whatever, you know, they were climbing for the big routes. They were climbing small routes for the big routes. But finally, there was like an era where, you know, if the small routes were super hard, they suddenly became just as significant as you know, these necessarily these, these great big roots. I mean, cragging kind of came into vogue in the seventies, you know, whether it was in Eldo where, you know, two or three pitch climb was, was valid all the way down to, you know, a place like the gunks where a lot of stuff is, is one pitch climbs. Yeah. And if you look at it even further, it's, it's a matter of convenience, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you have a certain amount of free time, you can go and do so much Mm -hmm. and not, it's totally valid. And if you want to even drill it down further, the popularity of bouldering takes it to its essence in a way. Sure. Just going to, okay, screw the easy moves. Let's just find the hardest, you know, five meters or less and go for it. And you don't have to ramble up to the crux. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. So, well, you mentioned like what was going on in Dresden. um, And you also mentioned sort of the being around for the kind of the advent of sport climbing. Um, not in the gunks because it's really never taken hold there. <laughs> they never really, really never caught on. No. Well, that's fine. I yeah. think you it's know, a good thing. It's fine. yeah. When you have a limited resource, like to just start spraying spraying bolts into it, isn't necessarily the best idea. But nevertheless, like you were there on that cusp. You you joked before we started the show that because I made a joke about your lycra because I've seen some <laughs> awesome photos of you in in lycra. But you were like, well, I also wore painter pants because that was the thing in the seventies was nice free flowing painter pants. Oh, for sure, and. Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, so you were there for this transition. So tell me about your climbing. You know, you started out as a trad climber uh, because that's that was just climbing, right? And you were in the gunks, so that happened. So when did this uh, kind of sport climbing thing sort of come on your radar? Because I think you were sort of one of the first, not first person, but you were among that first wave of people to embrace it. Yeah, well, I got really lucky, right? So. Um, back in, I think it was 1980, Kim Kerrigan, who was this, you know, very, very well-known and very accomplished and a hell of a good climber from Australia. He, he was in the gunks with a couple of other folks. Uh, Alex Lowe was visiting the same time and, and, uh, a couple of Brits, Dougie Hall. Anyway, um, they're ripping the place apart. And, uh, and I remember climbing with Kim as much as I could. And, you know, one thing Kim said to me was, if you want to, if you want to be the best climber you can be, get out and it's climbing as many different routes, different kinds of rock as you can and, uh, and sample it all. And it's going to just make you a way better climber. Mm-hmm. I really took that to heart. I really said, okay, I'm out. I'm going to, you know, I, I, I just got the travel bug in a big way. So the first year we went climbing, uh, uh, overseas, went with my girlfriend to Europe in 81. Uh, and we started in Britain because Britain was the only place that had rock climbing comparable to the U S like, you know, there was the whole continent and, but there was no real rock climbing that anybody raved about. It was the Verdun Gorge people go to. But uh, anyway, we, we climbed a bunch in, in Britain and made our way onto the continent. And so for some reason or another, I can't remember why, but the first place we ended up was a place called the, uh, the faults in, 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 uh, in Germany, the Rhineland faults. So we, this is like a big sandstone area, which would be kind of like almost a red river gorgeish kind mm-hmm. of climbing at, you know, it, and it, the climbing—that's kind of a place that was having a bolt war at the time. There was, okay. uh, they, you know, they had these bolts in, and the old trad trad guys were ripping the bolts out, and some were putting the bolts in. But the thing that really uh, I found interesting, 
I went to this crag one day, and there's like five or six climbers who are basically on a on a jumar with um, with their harness, and they're just basically working roots on this uh, in the system. And I was like, well, what the hell is so that? Like mini track, like mini traction. Well, it'd be mini traction yeah, now, but you know, right. but you know, at this time, you got to remember as well. You know, part of how we climbed was that if you fell off the rock, you went back to the ground. You didn't hang. I mean, hang dogging was the same as basically, you know, like you know, I don't know. Robbery. It just wasn't fair. Sure, it just didn't sure. do it. It's just cheating. It, well, like, in, just in case, because this is so long ago. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but, you know, hang dogging, you know, we hardly even use that term anymore because it's not even something you think about. But that simply means like hanging on the rope, resting, and then trying those moves again after you've fallen off. Right. Hang dogs, hang dogs are, being called a hang dog is a real pejorative. Yeah, but now, yeah, but I forgot to even frame that, that yeah. the way you guys were climbing was like, you know this this weird sense of purity that, in some ways, I mean, when we if we wanted to talk about yo-yoing, it was actually really strangely unpure. Of but, course, <laughs> but yeah. So you you guys weren't necessarily ever hanging on the rope and working roots, and and you walk into this place, and these guys are yeah, they're hanging on ropes and they're working these roots, and you know you weren't even supposed to check out the holes beforehand. It was ground up. You fell. If you fell, you came back to the ground. Whatever. But anyway, I was like, well, you know, I I I wasn't I wasn't really caring about what the rules were or not. I, I, I was not this complete, like, you know, some profit or purism has to happen this way. I was like, okay, you're in Rome. Do what, what's going on here. So yeah. but what I found interesting was, you know, the first 512 I did was in 1980, and it was this big 20-foot roof called uh, Kansas City, Route of John Braggs. And I think it took me like five or six days to finally, you know, do this route. It's by yo-yo style. I finally did it. And I was like, oh, you know, totally psyched because it was hard at the time. And then I'm on a route of the same grade now, and I'm checking it out this way by hang-dogging and checking out a top rope and then going for the lead, and it took like three hours. Right. I'm like, huh, <laughs> what an idiot I've, I've been. <laughs> but, but so it really was an eye-opening thing. It's like, I tell you right then, though, I, did, I said, whoa, if this is not a if, – if, if what – if what the sport's going to embrace is going to be pure difficulty, there's no doubt this is the route to pure difficulty. But right. that wasn't what the sport was all about then. There, you know, that whole idea of, of keeping your wits about you, placing protection, being able to run it out, you know, that, you know, it, it was still, that was the, that was a big part of it. So in other words, like pure difficulty is what, I mean, sport climbing really focuses on. And, and what you're saying is that there was all these other things that were, as important or nearly as important as difficulty or style. I mean, it, it was, yeah. it, 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 and it's kind of funny because really for a while that was it. It was all about the difficulty and still, you know, when we talk about it, we're yeah. really impressed by people who climb, you know, any, you know, hard five fourteen, fifth five fifteen. that's a big number, but it's kind of funny to see some of the, some of the uh, modern climbers or maybe they're getting to be more middle-aged climbers at this point, but you look at it like, you know, Sonny and Tommy and some other folks that are doing stuff that is, you know, back bringing that element of, uh, of danger, or, or at least you know, of risk, back into the sport, and there's something to be said for that. I mean, I, believe me, I'm, I'm, the, I'm, I don't want to ever risk my life again rock climbing. Right. I, I'm too old to young, die yeah. young, as I've said before. So it's, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to start now. Right. Yeah. So all right. So this, this is this epiphany to you, um, but certainly it's not like you could just walk back to the gunks, and and without derision, just start doing that, or were you able to? No way. Oh, no, 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 no. Like, like, and, and again, this is part of it. I, I went back and I just went back to climbing the way I did. But, uh, but it was in your head. It was in my head for sure, for sure. But but believe me, it wasn't it wasn't yet a done deal in Europe. Uh, that same trip in '81, we took a trip to a crag that was really known by very few people called Bukes. And uh, Bukes at the time had no true sport routes. And I went. I ran into. Uh, uh, Ron Fawcett there, a, a British climber of, of note at the time, probably the best British climber was around, and he was there with his wife, Jill. Right. And I climbed uh, probably the hardest routes at Bukes with, with uh, Ron. They were, you know, maybe 12A, 12B were as hard as it got. But they were routes you put gear in, and you clipped the odd piece of fixed gear and all the rest. And I would be back in Bukes a few years later, and I was like, what the hell happened to this place? I mean, all of a sudden, there's people climbing on there's all over the place there's bolts sure. everywhere and then people are climbing really hard shit that i had not a chance of doing right 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 <laughs> and, and that was like whoa things just it just skyrocketed so right. that what i'd seen in 1981 really like by four years later had just happened right and you know if you remember that time anybody who's around 
there was a crisis of conscience in, in the U.S. in the North American climbing scene, and then all of a sudden, you, all the bolt words you heard about, and people wanted to support climbers, wanted to trad climb, and the keepers of the flame, and the fist fights between Becker and you know, all the things that happened were all happening because really it was just a tremendous sea change in the world of climbing, and mm-hmm. no one was willing to cede ground. Right, but it eventually worked out, you know. Yeah, and Lycra was just a side note to that. By the way, do you know how Lycra ever came about in the U.S. climbing community? No, but. Do you want to know? Yes, of course. So there, there was a uh, a climber named Mike Law, another Australian. Sure, I actually I've actually met Mike. Oh, good, a well, long time ago. Yeah. Well, Mike is Claw. He's the Claw. Yep. He's quite a character. And uh, when I was down in Australia in '83, um, it was very much of a big punk scene in Arapiles. So everybody had their hair dyed, and they were wearing weird clothing. And and really, uh, my, during that year, I think it was later in '83, Mike came to visit the U.S. He had this trip that uh, ended up in the gunks. And uh, Mike started wearing, and you know, he would go and buy these weird fabrics. Now, at the time, people were wearing things like tracksuit bottoms, and also Hind had some Lycra running clothes. So Lycra mm-hmm. was making its way in. Long story short, Mike started making a bunch of uh, Lycra clothing, and this guy, Yu Her, who was a very, very talented climber who li- had lost his legs on Mount Washington, really just clung on to the claw and thought this guy was the coolest thing. And pretty soon, Huey was sewing his own Lycra clothes and he was selling them to everybody and his, his, uh, he called them her, her clothes. And his, uh, I think he said, uh, get into her pants. That was his tagline. <laughs> so, and, and that's and, awesome. That's like been lost to history. Well, not, not anymore. Awesome. <laughs> Maybe it should have been for sure, but right. you know, because Huey now is, uh, he's, you know, like one of the, one of the, uh, you know, world's leading, uh, uh, inventors of new prosthetics where it has his own right, lab right, at MIT. Right. But, Anyway, yeah, that was his business side. That was his startup. And so he brought him over. He's, yeah, it, it, I, you know, Claude really kind of started it, and then right. it just exploded. I mean, all of a sudden, you know, all these folks were starting these little garage businesses making these things. And as soon as it caught on with the bigger companies, like when Patagonia started making some Lycra stuff, not, of course, in those crazy fabric or fa- right. crazy patterns, but, you know, it, yeah. all, it went away. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty gnarly. But yeah, if, if anybody out there doesn't know what the hell we're talking about, get some back issues from like 85. Get Dude. some climbing back issues from like 85, 86. You have to be at least 18 yeah, to exactly. buy those things yeah, now. Yeah, it's a lot. Of, it's, they're very revealing. <laughs> that's, that's really, I think that's really the part where where it was a little bit shocking. It's like, <laughs> awful. <all right. laughs> yeah, awful. Okay, so back to uh, back, back to this this whole thing. So... So you, you saw this stuff going on and the bolts going in into right. Bukes. And also around this time, I mean, weren't you involved in the earliest uh, like permutation of competition climbing in some way or was that a little bit later? Um, well, the, the, first, uh, the first official climbing competition was in Barton in 1985. And in uh, that year, I'd, I was over in uh, – I had spending a good deal of time in Europe and uh, I was climbing a bunch with Wolfgang Gulick. And uh, we we had both been invited down to participate in this competition. Now, you know, the the idea of the we all are used to the ideas of comps right now. But up to that time, what you would basically have are these gatherings. Like one alpine club would invite another country's alpine club to come to this meet, and you do these routes together. And they were kind of competitions, but not like you know full on competitions. Right. Climbing is always competitive. But this this was the first one where they they created these routes on these rock walls in this beautiful valley, Bardecchia. And uh, anyway, Wolfgang and I go down thinking it's going to be kind of a cool thing. It's going to be kind of fun. Well, let me let me ask this real quick sure. before you get off on that story. But so when you say they created them, they were on natural rock. Yeah, and they chipped the roots to make okay. make uh, make these roots. Which uh, at the time, you know, if people chipped, they didn't talk about chipping. But right. this is this valley where the things were just created. Right. So there was a bit of. I mean, for me, I was like, "Whoa, this is kind of rad. This is not cool." I mean, mm-hmm. whatever sport climbing, but like chipping these, you know, on these beautiful walls, these roots for this competition seemed like crazy. But anyway, it it had happened. Right. So well, I guess there's like probably a feeling of like, "Well, this we have so much rock," and they do. Yeah, there's no so, doubt about it. <laughs> Anyhow, so you guys go down there. We go down there and. Uh, you know, we don't have to do any of the qualifiers. We're naturally in the finals for the for the end of this thing. But we're hanging around watching this thing, and and the vibe was really poisonous. It mm. it, it was you know there, it, there was a bunch of people we knew down there, and no one was talking to anybody. It was just, it was just like this very very serious thing. And Wolfgang and I both thought, man, this is kind of jingus. This is just not that much fun at all. We ended up, uh, you know, Jerry Moffat was down there as with us. He joined up to uh, to hang out. This is when his elbows were bunk, so he wasn't climbing in it. Otherwise, he would have been one of the invitees for sure. 
But they decide to make Jerry, <laughs> Jerry a judge, which Wolfgang I found hilarious to think of Jerry as judging this thing, but he was, he was there anyway. So the night before the finals, and Wolfgang and I had watched this entire thing, they invited me and Wolfgang and Jerry to do this press conference because I'm, I'm the only American there. So they want some kind of, you know, I'm the token American who's at this sure. thing. And uh, so they asked us, so what do you think? Now, you got to understand, they're, speaking, they're asking Italian. You know, we're speaking back in English as, as a bunch of different countries, and it's all getting translated around. And Wolfgang and I both gave the impression that we weren't that psyched about it. We thought it was kind of not a really in the spirit of climbing and blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon, they're, we're just, you know, people are yelling at us, you know, like like we're somehow not with it and, you know, mm-hmm. don't understand where the sport's going and, you know, what do you, why are you even here if you don't think the competition's good? And it kind of got really weird and to the point where it was so uncomfortable. Jerry grabbed the microphone and said, let me sing you a little song. And he, just, <laughs> and he, you know, he was completely wasted and he just started, just, you know, drunkenly singing and it, the whole thing settled down. We just left. Right. And that night Wolfgang got completely wasted and uh, I got pretty drunk too. And, Needless to say, we did not perform all that well in the competition, right? As it as it turned out, but probably the funniest part of the whole thing. And so it, this is when Stefan Glovich, who won the competition that year, and mm-hmm. he was you know, and and rightfully so, he looked great during the whole thing. But uh, after we, we hung out for the awards ceremony, and uh, at some point, my no, my name gets called out, and Wolfgang looks and goes, "What in the world could you have possibly won?" <laughs> I think you came in 40th. <laughs> I have no idea. So I go up there and I get this big trophy, right? And it's in a swag bag full of stuff. And like, and, and so I, and we're like, what the fuck is this thing for? And it turns out who came the longest distance to be in the competition. Yeah, right now, well it's like, yeah, man, I want I got a trophy. We, we go back, we go back to, uh, up to, back to the Franken year after that comp. And, uh, you know, the trophy's sitting there on Wolfgang's uh, coffee table, and we're just looking at this thing. And finally, Kurt Albert, who's another great uh, German climber, he, uh, he's a roommate of Wolfgang's as well. He pulls off the plate, and he takes one of those little wood burner things, and he carves into the, uh, the base of the statue Team Motivation, which is what we had named ourselves, uh-huh. you know, just because we were so unmotivated. We took that trophy, and we actually bolted it onto a new route in the Frankenjur, which became known as Team Motivation. Really? <laughs> yeah. Is it still there? No, because uh, actually another route went up next to it and the trophy disappeared. Oh, man. Yeah, yeah. I wonder where that trophy is. That's a damn good question. I've got German listeners. Well, who knows? Anybody knows where the trophy of team motivation is? I want it returned. Yeah, That's my well, trophy, it's, damn it. It's probably in some vault somewhere. <laughs> German listeners. Team motivation, trophy. please. I want it back. <laughs> I miss it. Mm. Wolfgang, had this, we had this big, big talk on the way back up because we had a whole drive through the night to get back to Germany. And Wolfgang was so bummed out by the competition. He truly had been, you know, he just, he was so, so mad that this thing went on. He was, and it wasn't because his performance, he didn't really give a damn about that. What he really didn't like was that climbing for him is a spiritual thing, right? It's just, he has fun with his friends and it didn't really matter. I mean, of course, that guy obviously left a legacy that anyone would love to have, but it wasn't always just about the route. It was often about just about having a good time, about being with your friends, about the camaraderie that naturally came from how we all started climbing. Mm-hmm. And he just saw this just being the decimation of everything that was sacred to the sport. And, you know, and, and to a degree I, I saw that too, but I said, I also, I also saw the sponsors there and I saw the people there and I saw there was 10,000 people who came right, to watch this right. thing. And, and I said, when, you know, this like it or not, uh, I, I mean, this is going to happen. Right. Uh, but my big thing is, like, what are they going to hold these comps, though? They can't just keep on chipping. Chipping new routes, yeah. And I think, you know, I think it was the next year at Arco. No, Arco, the next year, was, was that was the, the, you know, the Arco, Ma- where we become the Arco Masters. That was, mm-hmm. Bardenecki was the first thing, and then the Arco Masters became after that. And they chipped routes that next year. But I think the, the second year, the, the Arco in 87, I think, was when they had artificial walls. And after right. that, of course, who cares? Right. It's artificial wall. You do what you want. Do right. what you want. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's pretty wild that they thought, okay, we'll chip these routes. Yeah, and we'll but, just keep doing this somehow. But yeah, someone was like, "Wait a second, oh, what if we do this instead?" I, I see an opportunity. Right? <laughs> yeah, and then the first uh, artificial walls appeared. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, as a, a little bit of an aside, because you might have some insight into this, um, what do you think it is having spent a lot of time in Europe um, as to why you know you were right the 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 sport the competition thing really became this huge thing. In Europe, but it's never really been all that big a deal in the United States. And, um, you know, it sort of ebbs and flows a little bit, but I just always feel like it's not. Well, I know. I mean, we know that it's not what it is in, in Europe in terms of crowds, in terms of participation, to the point where 
it's not just about the, that there's more climbers there. It doesn't seem like it seems like there's something in the in the interest level or the psyche. What do you, do you have any ever thought about that or oh, what, you, what no, I, didn't I, happen? I, I think there's two two really big differences. One was that uh, the European culture in general is a is a, a, a focused on the outside and the mountaineering culture. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not very passionate about it, the, the odds are pretty good that you've been around climbing and outside and you're aware okay. of what it is. Now, pretty much outside of the Rockies, the Sierras, and maybe some places in the east, it's a vast no-stone no zone. It's still mm-hmm. most people mm-hmm. in the Midwest. I mean, they only know about climbing now because it's exposed through media. It's exposed through uh, climbing gyms. And the other thing that's big is a lot of the European countries uh, support it. Right. There's there, the uh, the clubs support you know climbers getting into it. There's big programs to do that. They're that are, that are you know, supported by by the by the government. So sure. Yeah. Cody Roth mentioned that too when we were talking about his stint in Austria. Right. Yeah. So I mean that the the state supports these outing club like these alpine clubs and and these these sorts of things. So right. Just imagine if you were like. You know, didn't have to be a professional climber, but you had some talent. It would be like being in some kind of like minor league baseball team or whatever. Sure. So you you could you could get something out of it. So mm-hmm. I think the idea of uh, it being supported monetarily much more and the fact that the exposure level is so much higher mm-hmm. makes it interesting. But at the same time, if you think about it, there even though it's not a – you're never going to – well, who knows? Maybe someday it's on major network TV – it almost, well, it was. Snowbird right. was, actually. Right. That was why I rolled the sports. So we started high. Were you at Snowbird? I was. All right, huh? I actually predicted Ed Lange to win it as well. Uh, well, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Did you win any money on it? No. Act, you know, I was in France um, before that competition, and I had a phone call. Uh, I, ca- I called back uh, into California for messages, and, so, and somebody from the production company for that event was asking for me to go down for an interview to do the the MC stuff that Dan Goodman would end, end up doing. Right. And by the way, Dan was a better choice for sure. And and as an aside, this is on YouTube, so if you guys want to watch this, because I know it is, um, the the eighty eight snowbird like comp, eighty eight, yeah, exactly. it was like the zenith for American competition climbing because it was on NBC. Yeah, um, the wide world of sports. Yeah. Right, it, was well, a, it might be ABC, ABC, it was, whatever it was, it was network. Anyway, so that's what we're talking about. So you can YouTube that. Maybe I'll link it on the. On you the should, thing. Yeah. especially Dan taking yeah. Dan taking the giant whip. Yeah. It's, it's it's worth it. Yeah. So anyway, they interviewed you to be to be the, the and MC right. or whatever. So when he does a little screen test. They they do the question and answer and like so you know so what do you think, Russ? Who's going to pull pull it out of their ass and win this thing? You know and and, uh, and I said and because I was friends with Patrick and I knew a bunch of the French uh, climbers as well, but you know, actually a bunch of the climbers in this thing altogether. And I said, look at you know right now. The way that Patrick think, thinks and the way that guy goes to competitions or not, if he's not fit and he doesn't think he's going to win, he ain't going to show up. And I know he's climbing really well right now. He's mm-hmm. just over in France, and I put my money on him. And then, you know, when he won it, I remember seeing the the producer there, and she looked at me. I said, told you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> now, it's storied because not only did he win, he was the only guy to top the wall out. He was the last competitor, if Absolutely. I remember right. Yep, he so, was. Yeah, and so with, even with all that drama, like, that was – the last time they put sport climbing on television. It's so. true, and it really was amazing. I mean, you couldn't have made it better for Hollywood. I, sure. I can't. He, you know, whether he was the last climber or not, he was the last climber anybody remembers. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. I'm pretty sure he might have been the last, at least in the finals kind of thing. Yeah. He might have been the last guy to go. And he, and like, he topped it out. Yeah. And he did so with, you know, style and, you know, it was, yeah. it was great. That's pretty awesome, actually. I forgot that you were there. Um, although you had told me that before, so that's pretty cool. That was fun um, to see. Well, let, let me ask. I mean, one of the things I love about these stories that you've told about hanging out in Europe and Wolfgang and all these guys, and uh, I always feel like I don't know. In in modern times, you know, because of the state support and like the celebrity that you can get out of uh, out of climbing in Europe, that you know, I think we feel like, and this is probably mythology, but we feel like. You know, the dirtbag climber is this like quintessentially American sort of thing um, or this like partying dirtbag kind of climber. And and your stories, I know Wolfgang went on to be very famous and, and to, to probably make a fair amount of money um, before he passed in, in climbing and everything else. But your stories just always make me think about these guys as the same way, just like living to climb and trying to make it work and and uh you know sleeping on people's floors and cruising around and and uh you know all those guys that 
that became such storied names started out that way anyhow. They really, they really did, and, and that's it's probably still the case for most climbers today. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, so a few very selected climbers truly make uh, what would be called a good living from climbing. There's mm-hmm. not a lot. I mean, Percentage-wise, it's probably the same as it was then. Or tell you the truth, I, I, even Wolfgang, when you look at the mid-'80s, he wasn't, he wasn't making a ton of money climbing. Right. He made money by doing some slideshows. He got some sponsorship, a little bit of gear, but... Not a lot. And mm-hmm. if you want to think about dirtbag, my God, the Brits put any Americans to shame. Yeah, Those right. guys are living on the dole. Living on the dole, yeah. Hunter House Road with Jerry and, and Chris Gore and, and Andy Pollitt and Martin Atkinson. You know, those guys were just living – they're all on the dole and making you know getting like 35 quid a month in a free house. And right. They didn't get any more dirtbag than that. Yeah, totally. And yet they were the top of the sport. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's like another like really awesome thing uh, that, you know, in, it's changed a, a bit, but, but again, like – there's a lot of these top climbers that, you know, I mean, what were they even eating? Like, how could their nutrition been like anything but just like the worst? And plus, you know, they were total party animals as well, you know? You know, that's – they. I don't think they partied quite as much. I mean, some, there was partying for sure. sure. But still, they uh, – they were pretty good at saving money. Matter of fact, you know, a lot of them would save up their money just so they could take a trip away from sure. Britain and somehow, you know, squirreling away some money on the equivalent of about fifty bucks a month. Right, being able to do so that that is truly a talent. Mm-hmm. And yes, yeah. you know, they, they, they end up in California. Like, how'd you get here? Right, right. Well, I hitched a ride. Yeah. <laughs> well, that still goes on too. Yeah. Actually, I just yeah, it's it's amazing to me what. I mean, the, the whole climber thing, what everybody will go through to be climbers is, is still awesome. Like, I think it, any normal person would just be, like, blown away by what we consider completely normal. Yeah. You know? Oh, no doubt. Yeah. So, I mean, I was actually, speaking of being at OR, was here with a friend and, and met um, a Sports Illustrated reporter who, you know, used to doing football and all this sort of stuff. And he was here to, this was quite a while ago, but he was here to interview Chris Sharma for SI Kids. Uh-huh. You know, when he was a lot younger and, you know, he was telling me, sitting there telling me about how he, he'd met somebody who like, yeah, he told me he like lived in a tent, you know, and just because like, this guy had no idea what climbing. He's like, yeah, I lived in a tent for like two years and just, you know, lived on nothing and blah, blah, blah. And like was so blown away. And I was just like, do you want to meet more people like that? Because, <laughs> you know, within about 10 yards, because we were standing in the climbing section over there. Right. I'm like, I can find some more people that have gone a lot longer than two years, you know, in their tent, and they're, they're like the top of the sport, you know. Like, you think that's interesting? Yeah. Let me introduce you to this guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, let's go find Chango. No, he's not here. <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, he was just like, I, he couldn't believe it. Right. And I was like, yeah, so what? He had a tent. Like, that was good. Like, yeah, better than know, most. Better than he was living in the boulders in Yosemite or whatever. You know, so it's, it was, it was just funny. Like, made me realize that nobody out there knows what the people go through to, no. to be climbers. So, no, but it's, in the end, you know, it's a, it. It really was a time where uh, there was very little professionalism as we think of it now, and uh, you know, and it, most climbers were dirtbags of some sort, of some ilk or another. I mean, the only guy I can really think of that was truly making a great living when he got into the mid late eighties was Patrick. Right, he really right. was a. I mean, he was making money and he had some big contracts. Sure. Yeah. So let's uh, talk a little bit more about your career. So you, you're over there for quite a few years. I mean, were you just traveling back and forth? Like, I, I principally that... spent, you know, after college, I principally spent about the next six years uh, full-time climbing mm-hmm. as much as I could. My parents were good enough to let me live at the house. I could get a decent job for a few months. And uh, I would work anything for a few months to maybe half a year and I'd take off and go someplace. Right. And right. I spent most of that time going overseas, a ton of trip to Europe. You know, to Japan, to Korea, to Australia, to, you know, just just any place that had climbing that uh, was worth doing or I heard about. And right. a lot of those trips came about just, you know, there was, again, no internet. Mm-hmm. So it was just doing some research, finding out from a friend, oh, yeah, you got to go check out this place. So these were just trips that came about by happenstance. Sure. I mean, the place you had to go, but there's tons of places. You Once you've been to Europe about, you know, whatever, 10 times, it's time to go check out someplace else. right right absolutely but there were there were great trips i tried to mix it up you know going to like eastern europe when it was the iron curtain when sure. going back oh, yeah, to yeah. america and there was yeah. like you know my, my first trip there was to czechoslovakia and i was supposed to meet some british friends there i never found them i ended up just my first route there was a completely petrifying you know unaware that i did a first free ascent of some 12a on a on three bolts over three of those big ring bolts with of course right. of 120 feet right. petrifying but but it ended up being a great trip, and I had no idea when I was there. I met I met these great Czech climbers and had a great time. But 
it was like all the good stories just kind of happened. It happened by accident. Mm -hmm. But I remember after having this great trip, being there for two weeks and just meeting all these people and having this great trip on the way out of Czechoslovakia, I didn't have no idea, but I never saved my visa by a week. And the border guards on the train out, I'm just like, they'd come on the train, they're checking my, my visa. And this guy's just like looking at me, he starts yelling and he's just, you know, you know, this guy's got a uniform and he's got his machine gun over his shoulder. Sure. And he's like, you know, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, I don't speak any Czech. I'm like, what the hell is he on about? And he's pointing at my thing. No, no, he's pointing at my visa instead. Right. And then going this, I look and I see seven. And then I see the one word I did learn was day, which is den, seven den. Ooh, I've been here for like 14 den. Right. No bueno. Right. And uh, the, then this other cop comes on. And they both kind of looked at me and it's like, what are they going to do? Right. And so they just, threw my passport back because I was just at the border. I was like, get the hell out of here. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, you know, those kinds of things happened then, which, you know, never happened now. But it was, it, but they made they made these trips exciting. And also, I took most of, virtually every trip I took, I took solo because who mm -hmm. else is going to be able to take off six months from whatever they're doing and go someplace? Mm -hmm. And I really loved that because it always immersed me. You had no choice. You immersed yourself in the culture. You couldn't be in any bubble. There's no friend to be with that could kind of take you off. So, you really got involved with the local climbing scene. And it was a tribe, a smaller tribe, right? So everybody wanted to hang out anyway, but you, you had to be yeah, you had to be part of it. You couldn't be away from it. Now, you, did you go to Eastern Germany as well? I did. Beforehand? Or before was, it was it was split, uh, re, reunited or yes. reunified or whatever? So, um, I mean, when you would do this, you had to have been, in terms of climbing, but not just climbing, but in general, like kind of an alien I mean, for an American to show up in a place like that to climb must have been just like some sort of person walking in from Mars. Not many people did it. I mean, Henry Czechoslovakia was really weird because weird uh, yeah, definitely that was even weirder than, than East Germany in some ways. Because I went when I did go to East Germany, it was with Wolfgang, mm -hmm. and he had been there a bunch. So we, we sure. you know, he had connected to Bern Arnold, and you know, we hung out, and that was that was almost like being on a guided tour right. Right, compared to you know just like sure just trying to figure it out in Czechoslovakia. But, you know, it, it was really different because you were going to I – mean, you know, it's, it's really hard to think of what it was like then to travel into a place that was so alien, that was the enemy. I mean, truly like the enemy. You're talking about the Cold War and mm -hmm. this weirdness. Uh, but the people – you know, what you realize when you got there is that people are all just people. Mm -hmm. And they're super psyched to mm -hmm. go climbing and they're super psyched to see you. And I never, I never got any bad vibe for being an American in any of those places. As a matter of fact, they'd just love to know Well, it. I think – yeah, that's kind of more I was getting at. I think it would be – they would be stoked. You know, because yeah. y y they they had to have known about places probably like Yosemite somehow. Some of them. Anyway. Oh yeah, yeah. And so, you know, in and I think a place like Czechoslovakia or something, you know, the the mythology surrounding Yosemite, which we all live with, that's so huge and continues to huge, and actually it's probably bigger now than ever. I mean, it must have been just exponentially larger to these guys climbing these. You know, making it up as they go and climbing these little these little sandstone towers that they were climbing on and stuff, and you know, just they probably were like, you know, wow, this is a guy from from there. Uh, you know? Just you know, just for them, the idea of America, right? You know, it was just like, whoa, that's so cool because you know, whatever. They just thought it was the neatest thing. They, Those it, were the good old days when they thought they, we were awesome. they liked us, right? Yeah. Right. But the common you know, people did anyway. Yeah, you know, a good example of that as well was uh, in '86. I was over. Uh, Skinner, Skinner and I, Todd Skinner and I decided at some point we wanted to go climb in Russia. But the only way to go climbing in the USSR was to go on, uh, basically go to the speed climbing competition that they held every oh, right. every couple of years. They're still into that, aren't they? I don't speed you know. Speed climbing? If they, if, if they are, it's definitely worth going to. It's, right. it's, it's just ridiculous. It was really fun. But anyway, we managed to get the Alpine Club to back us because we had to have an invitation for our Alpine Club. And when Jim McCarthy was the president at the time, he said, yeah, I'll get you guys. You know, we'll get a, we'll sign a, a note saying you guys are the official U.S. team and Whatever. So we went over there, and the the Russians were so you know to have the Americans come to this competition, which is generally just about Eastern European company uh, countries, and then I think Japan would show up, and you know West Germany would show up, but mostly it's Eastern European countries. And uh, you know you can imagine Skinner. Skinner was just larger than life, no matter what. He has sure. his cowboy hat right, on, right? right? And they're doing this interview, and uh, they're really psyched that these Americans here. And you know, I'm from New York. It's like, oh, New York is. Then uh, with Skinner. You know, they say, so Todd, you know, this comes to these translators like, so Todd, where in America are you from? And he goes, Wyoming. Wyoming. Where, where is Wyoming? And he says, it's in the West. Oh, the West. And what do you do in Wyoming? I am a cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> and the crowd goes nuts. And, you know, 
<laughs> so you know, I knew I knew what you were gonna say. Because I knew what, you know, I could just imagine what he was going to lay out. He just needed a Marlboro hanging out of his mouth and he would have become president. Right. (laughs) Because there is this weird, like, I've heard of this from other people that there's this weird, even in Germany to a certain extent, like, this, like, fascination with the Western cowboy culture. Totally. Like, we don't even have it. No, we don't believe it because we know it's bullshit. Yeah, right. (laughs) So the, everybody flips out over him being a cowboy. They loved it, you know. And and Todd, you know, he he never missed a beat. And right. after that, you know, he was this celebrity for that entire competition. Yeah, it yeah. was hilarious. You were like, I should have said cowboy. Oh god, I couldn't. I couldn't never pulled it off. Well, and Todd's no. wearing the Stetson. You know, yeah, he's got well, the he's, he's got the cowboy. Cowboy. He, the only thing missing with the chaps. You right, know? exactly. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Totally. Did you end up climbing over there? We did. You know, and, and amazingly, uh, we we. We uh, somehow or another managed to come in third place, which was nice. astounding. You know, no one's going to beat the Russians, right? And I think the second came, in, the Poles came in second, but somehow, you know, Todd and I were crafty about it. We saw, it, it, I don't even want to get into how weird the competition was, but we just followed the techniques and used the equipment in terms of lengths of rope that the Russians did, and we managed to figure out how to do well. I, mm-hmm. One of these, in this, if you can imagine a speed climbing comp, one of the one of the things we had to do was a four pitch route, and we had to climb it as fast as we could. And we realized, you know, the Russians had ropes that were exactly the length of the roots. There was never any coiling. So you mm-hmm. just climbed this. So anyway, and anything went. You could grab on whatever you want. You had to stay within these boundaries. But, you know, we, so we climbed this four-pitch route as fast as we can. And we, we really burnt up it really fast. But they also included the rappelling time. It turned out we had the second fastest ascent time. We had the slowest rappel time. Because <laughs> we were like, uh, yeah, we're not going to die. Let's right, just- <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's just keep it under wraps here. Yeah. Well, that must have been totally, I mean, again, like you're – it's hard uh, for I think current generation and me myself as well. I mean, I was a kid in the eighties, uh, but you're not really is aware of the political scene when you're a kid. But I mean, it was serious business back then. I mean, this was Reagan era, you know, Cold War stuff. That yeah, yeah Gorbachev was. I think at that point we were. Uh, I think we were into Perestroika. We had gone through. Right. You know, it, it's it was it was interesting. It yeah. was interesting. Yeah. Never changes. I mean, that's. I mean, it's cool. I mean, climbing is always. Uh, I think centered around this idea of travel, but also, I mean, it, it's sort of hokey or whatever, but this idea that I think I've always felt that, you know, if there's one thing that helps is that we, we automatically have this thing in common, you know, when you walk into a place and you don't speak the language and you don't, if they're climbers and you're a climber, well then we, you know, we meet eye to eye on this one thing. Totally, and, and you know, there, there's been these peace climbs like on Everest and all that sort of thing that is sort of built on this. But it, it it's more powerful on that individual level that I've found because I've traveled alone as well on on into some places. Nothing nothing like that, but it's just nice and comfortable feeling to know that. Well, I know these guys feel the same way I do about this one thing. You know, and I'm not, I'm not even so sure right now that you could get the same. Uh, the same kind of vibe as you had then, only because you know climbing's become much more egalitarian in terms of the segment of population it engages. Uh, it's no longer just about somebody who had some kind of outdoor ethic experience. Or if you think about all the folks that climb, it really runs a tremendous social gamut, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all over the map. And for one reason or another, it really had nothing to do with income. But there was a there was uh, there was this kind of solid. Um, Is that I think somebody's trying to get in. Yeah. Now we're good. Can I actually have a towel? And now a word from our sponsors. That's good. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. That happens all the time. I, I pre- it's kind of late in the day. I didn't I did, yeah. Anyway. Got here. Cool. Where but were we? I was just think, oh, saying about the flattening. Oh, yeah, okay. So. Yeah, I mean, it's. Uh, I'm not sure you could go any place right now, and just because you're a climber with other climbers, have that same vibe. Just because there's two, it, it's such a broad social spectrum, right? And you, you know, maybe, but I mean, you'll have something to talk about. But mm-hmm. will you just like all of a sudden be invited to the stranger's house to hang for the week? Why uh, not? I don't know. I feel like it, it can happen still. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I it it depends. I, yeah. Again, it's uh it was automatic then. Right. It wasn't even a thought. Right. If somebody right, shows right, up, right. oh yeah, dude. But because and also if by the time you got to two people you had some common friend. Right. And, and, well yeah, because and it's interesting that you say that because I was as you tell these stories, without being self conscious of it, you're just like, you know, oh yeah, and then I was with Todd Skinner and then I was with oh and then Jerry Moffat was there and then you know, and you're just like hitting all these names that that are important to me because 
I started climbing in 89. And so as soon as I started reading the magazines, you're talking about the people who were on fire in 89, you know, in the late yeah. 80s. And so you're just like dropping these names. But like I said, in not a self-conscious way because you guys, you were a really good climber and a really well-traveled climber. And so that's the people you were running into. It was such a small tribe, especially at that level of traveling climbers, you know, who were climbing really hard routes. They were you know, your friends. And, yeah. They were your friends. You met yeah, him. Kim and- Kerrigan too. I mean, he's, he's a legend, you know, yeah. in Australia and, and, uh, he was, a you know, it, it, that was, you know, I think anybody who climbs, if you want to climb your best, you're always going to climb with the folks who are going to push you. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you know, get out of your comfort zone. And, uh, and you know, all those guys, I mean, they were brilliant climbers, but there's some days they weren't brilliant climbers. Right. I mean, it's like anything. It, it, people have on days, off days, but more than anything else, not not only were they going to push me as a climber, but mm-hmm. they were just fun as hell to hang out with. Mm-hmm. They're just great folks. If they weren't great folks, you didn't hang out with them. Right. Well, um, I'm going to kind of, I want to ask you something a little more serious um, because you're you're still climbing. You yeah. know, how, lo- how long did we decide? Seven, uh, 30, uh, what year? 37 years now. Okay, yeah. 37 years. Um you know, we, like I said, we, we climbed in Columbia together um, not too long ago. You're still traveling to climb. You were in Sicily recently yep. as well. Yep. And, uh, you know, but looking at, I mean, one of the things, you know, we hinted at is that, you know, your good friend Wolfgang died. You know, Kurt's gone. Kurt Albert's gone. Uh, you know, a bunch of people that I probably can't even mention. But looking back at this life and all these friendships you've had and these things that, like, you know, these guys that aren't with us anymore. Um, some of them died climbing. Some of them didn't. I mean, what, what's your sort of, uh, what's your sort of take on a, a life of climbing and, and these experiences you had? And, you know, you just came off this injury, this back injury and everything else. Like, well, what's your take on your sort of life of climbing that you stuck with it this long? And it's still something that you're, you're pursuing as much as you can. I mean, you were, you were texting me and emailing me like how much it sucks that you can't climb because your, your back is messed up. Although it, feels, it seems like you're doing pretty well. Well, now. it'll get better. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, there's, there, there's a couple of questions. Can you, refl- yeah. Can you sort of reflect on a, a life of climbing in the sense, you know, um, I, I think, I think truly if, if you, you know, if you're into climbing for as long as I've been and others, it, you, you certainly get beyond the idea of just climbing for difficulty because you are just not going to climb as hard as you want. It's all mm-hmm. there is to it. You may you do your best, but it is about, it's about the community. It's about the friendships you develop. And, you know, I look at, in some ways I was just the most blessed person in the world to end up climbing. I really think anyway, that it, with, uh, with those folks that are gone. I mean, you know, Alex Lowe was a dear friend. I loved him. We had great trips. Skinner was a dear friend. I loved him. We had great trips. Same for Wolfgang and Kurt Albert. I mean, there's, you know, unfortunately, and a lot of, a lot of other folks that, uh, you know, aren't as well known, but are just as dear to my heart. Um, I, I don't, I don't get overly maudlin, uh, thinking about, yeah, missing them in that manner. I, mean, I missed them, yes, but some of those folks died climbing, and some died in uh, you know, Wolfgang died in a car accident. Right. You know, Skinner died from a, what, in my opinion, is just a stupid accident where he should have had a retired harness long ago. I mean, Kurt died of just having a stroke or something happened in the middle of easy ground. Uh, right. The, you. That's life. You know, we're going to lose friends. And uh, the good thing about the community is, I feel like I continue to make new friends. I mean, I look at people that. You know, I, that I just think of being great folks now. I mean, there's you, there's JT, there's Bag, there's, you know, Tommy Caldwell and Sonny Trotter and, you know, a bunch of folks that are younger and just fantastic folks. And plus some of my old, my old gang's still around. Yeah, Lynn, totally. Lynn, Lynn's still around. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to go kick it in the rifle next week. And Are you really? Yeah, for Wednesday and Thursday. Yeah. together. Yeah, you should come out for sure. Nice. You know, take a day off. Watch, watch me fall off five elevens more. Yeah, don't worry great. about that. But, you know, th- those, and those life, those, those friendships, uh, continue and I and you know I I do get it from some folks saying God you're so lucky because you had those experiences and they're young know, climbers but you know you got to understand everybody who's a climber and is passionate about it's going to have their own story their own passionate memories of the times they did it and the longer you do it the more you have those things mm-hmm. it's just you know, the deeper they become so yeah I don't see I mean I still love to climb and I can never see turning my back on climbing just because give you know it's it's made me. It, it gave me a it gave me a living. Mm-hmm. It uh, it gave me uh, a reason for being in in uh, in young formative years, and uh, it gave me friendships that uh, that I'll have forever and memories of I'll never lose till the day I die. Well, awesome! I think that's a perfect place to end. Actually, <laughs> um, I totally appreciate you sitting down, Russ, and uh, 
You know, these stories, uh, I heard some more today, and I'm sure there's a bunch more I haven't heard. <laughs> and, um, and building on what you just said, I, I feel really lucky that we've started to hang out because Absolutely. it was a, you know, we knew each other a little bit, but, uh, that trip to Columbia, I just had the best time hanging out with you and Amy and, and, uh, I'm glad we're friends now. So. Yeah, me too, Chris. Absolutely. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, thanks for listening, and thanks to Russ for sitting down, and also thanks to Russ for reminding us that the pillars of this sport, this passion, this thing that we love so much are indeed friendships. The friendships and the partnerships that you make, I think, are the most important thing that we uh, have in climbing. And part of the fun of this whole thing is that I'm continuing to make friends like Russ. The Enormal Cast is helping out with that. This community has grown quite large. I'm still, uh, still surprised when I find out people are out there listening and I appreciate that. So thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to help out, remember that you can go to enormacast.com, click on the help out tab, a bunch of stuff to do to help out the podcast in terms of popularity and getting the word out there. And the most important thing is just to tell your friends, if you're digging this thing and you know some other climbers that aren't aware of it, let them know, let them know to give it a try. All right, folks, September, September is halfway over. I hope you guys are getting after it out there. It is indeed one of the great months worldwide for climbing, I think, in a lot of places. The fall, the early fall is so nice. Or early spring, if you're down in the Southern Hemisphere. Either way, it's a good month, September. So get out there and enjoy it. And don't forget to check your knot, check your partner's knot, communicate, do everything right this September, and safely send those projects. Come far, pilgrim. Feels like far. Were it worth the trouble? Huh? What trouble?